You are about to listen to the Friends of Anchor podcast, which keeps you up to date with the inspirational work of the Friends of Anchor charity and everything that it's doing to support cancer and haematology care in the northeast of Scotland. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Friends of Anchor podcast, in which we will be hearing from Gail Roberts, one of the original Courage on the Catwalk participants, as well as looking at some cancer slogans in advance of World Cancer Day on the 4th of February. We will begin by hearing from Erica Banks about a number of updates and news items, including a final call-out to anyone who may be interested in taking part in this year's Brave and Courage on the Catwalk events. Well, we hosted our first wellbeing retreat of 2023 in January. That was a big success. It was fully subscribed and we've had really lovely feedback coming through from people who attended. And Gail, who we're hearing from later, volunteered on behalf of Friends of Anchor to greet guests as well. So we're looking forward to the next one, which is in June. And what else has been happening? The podiatry service is fully back up and running in the day and outpatient units, which is wonderful. We've got some new patient packs and provisions being handed out. Volunteers are in full force in the hospital as well, doing the juice rounds. So it's just good to have those services back up and running strong for the start of the year. And what's the update on the new anchor centre? We are busy behind the scenes with our NHS Grampian colleagues as we prepare for the opening of the Anchor Centre. So that's what the physical building looks like, but also what our new services and provisions will look like when the doors open in September. So that's really exciting too. Great. And in terms of any fundraising activities or any events that people might want to be aware of, is there anything coming up of that nature? Definitely. If you're listening to this close to the release date, then we are coming up to the last call for applications for Courage on the Catwalk and Brave. So the deadline is Monday the 6th of February. And this is an opportunity to go totally out of your comfort zone, get up on the catwalk, do something for yourself, for your family, get involved in a little bit of fundraising if you wish. So if you know a little bit about Courage and Brave, great. It's easy to find out more. If you don't know about it and you think, what on earth is this? Head to our website and you can find out all the information there. There's information for people who may be interested in taking part. You can watch videos from last year's events. You can listen to January's podcast guest, John Greensmith, who shares all about Brave, which ties us in very nicely to this month's guest. So Gail Roberts is one of the OGs, OG Courage on the Catwalk model from 2013 when this event was first dreamed up. And we see Gail at virtually every one of our events since as a volunteer, someone who has stayed so invested and so involved in the charity. So really looking forward to hearing what her perspective is on the event as someone who took part in that first year, but has been involved and seen it develop and grow through the years as well. Brilliant. And how are your New Year resolutions going? Because you had spoken about getting in training for the kilt walk. I can't remember. Oh no, you've just reminded me. Um, I actually feel kind of okay about that. So I've started running again, and I say running, I use that term very loosely, jogging slowly, not doing great miles yet, but I'm looking forward to it. The fact that quite a few of the team from Friends of Anchor are taking part, I'm hoping that the team spirit will just carry me through. People keep telling me, no, you need to train. So I will eventually. Well, good luck with that. And we will keep checking in on you to make sure that some training is happening. In the meantime, thank you very much for this month's news and updates. Thank you for having me as ever. So Erica has given you the build up, but we can now hear from Gail Roberts herself. When Gail and I spoke, I started by asking her to say a bit about herself by way of introduction. I was born in Aberdeen. 
I am an Aberdonian, educated here from the age of five right up to the age of 18 at Aberdeen High School for Girls, which is now Harlow Academy, changed when I was still there. I left Aberdeen for a few years, came back and then went on to further education in my 40s when I did a sports science degree at Aberdeen University and worked in fitness up until about 10 years ago when I took early retirement. And can you tell us a bit about when and how cancer became part of your life experience? I've always been an exerciser, always been into sport, always done a lot of fitness and exercise. So to say it was a shock, yeah, it was definitely a shock. A year prior to my diagnosis, I actually had a pneumothorax, which is a collapsed lung. And because of that, a year later, when I had pain in my chest, and knowing from being an exerciser that it wasn't muscular, I went to my doctor and because of the history from the year before, I was sent up for an immediate x-ray, which was inconclusive. So went and had another one up at Wood End, which was obvious there was something there. Then had a bronchoscopy and CT scans, which diagnosed I had a tumor, which was a large B-cell lymphoma, which was behind my heart. The diagnosis wasn't good at that time, and I did have a mini thoracotomy, which they go in through your back, but they go right in under your chest. The tumor had attached itself to my lung, which he detached it from, but thereafter said it couldn't be removed. And the only choice was to have chemotherapy and radiotherapy. I did go through both, and that was almost 18 years ago, and here I am but it sounds as if that was quite a time for you. And I imagine the treatment was quite something as well. It was. I've always had a very positive attitude. And I think because I'm an exerciser, I can cope with a lot, I think, physically. I underwent a trial for my chemotherapy, which means instead of having six months of chemo, I did it in three months, which was a little taxing on the body, but the positive side was it was over in three months instead of the, <laughs> the benefits of the fast track chemo. Months. Absolutely. That trial went on up until a few years ago, which is now finished. But the benefit of that was that I was tested and looked at quite regularly and for a long time after I would have normally been discharged so if you ever get the opportunity and if you're undergoing treatment I would say definitely do the trial. And in terms of just the effect that that had on life what was that like? Difficult for an exerciser I tried to keep walking the chemotherapy weirdly enough and everybody's experience is totally different for me wasn't too bad if I can just turn it like that I was never sick, I didn't have any adverse reactions. I used to describe it as having a bad hangover, which I've experienced (laughs) on occasion. That's very honest of you. (laughs) Radiotherapy, I think, is a build-up. And the last week of that, I found quite painful. And thereafter, actually developed an infection in the pericardium because of scatter, which I think possibly wouldn't happen these days because the treatment is more targeted maybe than it was in those days. So yeah, it took me a long time to recover physically, I would say. And again, everybody's very different, but I would say give yourself a year to get back to full fitness after undergoing something like that. And effect on the family, what kind of impact did it have for them? 
My feeling about this, and again, it's a personal thing, but many people I have spoken to have agreed with me that it's a lot worse for the family and close friends than it is for the person undergoing the treatment. Mainly because I suppose you don't have a choice. You just got to get on with it. And it's all happening to you. So everything is all very much surrounding you and your treatment and how you feel. Whereas friends and family often just feel very helpless and can't fix it as they would like to do sometimes. So it's, it's tough. I think it's very tough on families and close friends. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I believe you were involved in the first ever Courage on the Catwalk. Erica refers to you as an OG. Can you just tell us a bit about that? First thing I'll tell you is OG stands for original and not old girls. As um, Thank some you of for them have said, yes, I thought I thought I would just add that. Although now we are a bit older, all of us are a little bit older. I was put forward for it by a friend of mine and decided it might be a bit of fun. Not sure what it was all about. It was all very new. Got to know the girls and they were wonderful. And this was in? This was 2013, which was the first Courage in the Catwalk. It has changed so much since then. It was much smaller. Nobody knew how it was going to go, how it was going to work out. Gail Rose and Premier Productions were involved with it right from the beginning. We had all her girls helping us and teaching us how to walk. It was a lot of fun. We raised quite a lot of money, considerable, not nearly as much as as, is now. But for that first experience for us, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I loved every minute of it, as I think we would all say. And we have all become extremely good friends and the majority of us still meet up very regularly socially for birthdays or just get togethers barbecues in the summer and it's it's a shared experience we've all experienced a similar thing so sometimes it's easier to talk to people who have that shared experience and we are all very open with each other and we're just we're family we really are So tell me about that first Courage on the Catwalk. What was it like to be involved in that? The learning to be models and the fun, being in with the other girls, being on the stage, hearing everybody's story. It was was all such a wonderful experience to go through and just being there and being a part of it and feeling that you were maybe giving back. And I think that's the thing that I've always felt and, and why I've been involved very much with Friends of Anchor since is that feeling of what they gave to you. It's a small thing that you can do to give back. And tell me a bit about what other involvement you've had with Friends of Anchor then. Since then, I started volunteering on a fairly regular basis, anytime I can. I do and have done since it started over two years ago. I um, do the reception at Radiotherapy where we greet patients and during COVID we would screen them, take their temperatures, whereas now we're just basically ticking them off the list, make sure that they're going the right place and if necessary and if they want to, have a nice chat. And I think having been through your own experience, it's a lot easier for them to open up to you if they want to. Some people are not interested to to chat and a lot of people really do want to, to talk to you, which is lovely and I love it. I always volunteer at Courage. 
I love being in and around and seeing how it's evolved and how bigger and better it's become every year. And of course, now we have Brave, which is, you know, fantastic. It's lovely that it's extended to the men as well as the women. Always volunteer that weekend and helping out. I always volunteer for the Christmas wrapping where they wrap the presents for the patients and the staff at the hospitals. That's always a a wonderful evening. I try to always volunteer on the golf day because I'm a golfer myself and I like being involved on the golf day. That's always lots of fun. And any other times that I'm available, I'll be there. I actually volunteered at the wellbeing retreat recently, a couple of weeks ago, which was a wonderful event. It was really nice to see patients and families or carers be able to have something to just relax at, enjoy themselves. And I have to say, I actually got my own nails done because it got a bit quiet one day. Quite right too. And the girl said, does anybody want their nails done? I went, oh yes, I'm going out tonight. Thank you. (laughs) Brilliant. An added bonus. That's terrific. And it really does sound as if there's the community aspect running through your experience of Friends of Anchor as if it's something that connects people in terms of the way it supports people with cancer. Absolutely. I look upon Friends of Anchor as an extension of my family. Close-knit, everybody's always there for each other. What they do for patients and carers and families is wonderful, is really wonderful. Not only that, that's just purely from the personal point of view, but obviously the research, the money goes into the new anchor unit and it's local. It's all staying here. And the Balmoral Group sponsor, everything that goes towards Friends of Anchor goes to Friends of Anchor. There's nothing sucked up in administration and wages, etc., which is another bonus. It's amazing. And you've obviously got quite a long-term perspective now on cancer and cancer treatment. What comments, advice would you pass on to someone who's just been diagnosed, perhaps? Try and have, try and have, and it's easy to say, as much of a positive attitude as you can. Ask lots of questions. And I think when you have a first diagnosis, your mind is just a mess. You can't think straight Make sure there's somebody with you because if you haven't heard things, they might have heard things. Go home, write things down, come back and ask as many questions as you can. Get as wide a perspective as you can. Try and keep as normal as you can, if possible. And I know that's very much dependent on health and how you are feeling. But if you can stick to some kind of normal routine if possible I think that's very advantageous and take everything that's offered to you be it freebies treatments accommodation transport if you need it use it and get involved with friends of anchor because join the family you know great advice thank you and what about thoughts for friends and family of people who've just been diagnosed with cancer that's tough I think that's very tough for people Just try to be there for them. Just try and be supportive if you can. Go with them as much as you can if that's possible. Get involved with doing things for maybe Friends of Anchor. I see a lot of people coming through on their own and that's a personal choice sometimes. But I think it's always nice for family members to feel like they're included and maybe they'd like to be with you. Maybe they would get something out of experiencing what you're going through and not feeling like they're pushed away. 
yeah, just be there. That's all. And any other comments that you'd like to make in closing? Just to get involved and give back if you can, if you are able, give your time. I think that's the key if you can. I'm now retired, so it's much easier for me to do a lot more than I could do. Just be a part of Friends of Anchor because of the wonderful charity that they are. When it comes to this month's From the Archives feature, I am going to go all technical on you, as I have been fascinated by the amazing list of equipment purchases that have been provided for the hospital over the years by Friends of Anchor, as a result of fundraising activities and donations by supporters of the charity. I'm hoping that a deafening clamour from listeners for more examples will lead to this theme being developed further in due course. But for now, let me whet your appetite by providing three early examples of groundbreaking equipment that Friends of Anchor were able to provide. In at number one are Paxman scalp cooling machines, which are used to prevent hair loss during chemotherapy. Second up is the ProSoma 3D Virtual System Simulation, which enables CT scan images to be analysed as 3D reconstructions, leading to the development of more effective radiotherapy treatment plans for patients. And thirdly, the wonderfully named Harmonic Scalpel uses ultrasonic energy to allow surgeons to simultaneously cut and seal body tissue, enabling them to operate on patients without any blood getting in the way. As I say, if you wish, I can provide many more such examples for future editions of From the Archives. We now move on to our Finding the Words feature, in which my wife Alison and I talk about our experience of language in connection with my cancer diagnosis and everything that followed from that. Sometimes words could really hit the spot and made a huge and very positive difference in the situation, and sometimes, for a whole range of reasons, things didn't go so well. Either way, we hope that our discussions of such topics will be of some interest and help to listeners to this podcast. In this episode, our focus is on letting people at my place of work know about my cancer diagnosis, and after a few episodes of being cross-examined by me, I think that you are pleased to be asking the questions today, Alison. I am indeed. I much prefer this arrangement, and will try and ensure that I pose you some searching questions, purely for the benefit of the listeners, of course. Okay, thanks for that heads up. Ask away. So, it's a Thursday afternoon in November 2017. We've had a morning meeting with your consultant at which we've learned you have mantle cell lymphoma and that you were booked into a haematology ward from Monday of the following week so that your first cycle of chemotherapy could begin. We'd come home, let the children know the situation and then you headed off to work, the school at which you taught in the centre of Aberdeen. I suppose my question is, why? It's a very fair question. We were still processing the situation ourselves and school would have been absolutely fine about it if I'd said that I needed to take some time out after the hospital appointment that morning. It really just came down to timing. I suddenly had a day and a half to let colleagues know the situation and to discuss what arrangements and plans would need to be put in place. A weekly meeting with my fellow school leaders was scheduled for that afternoon so it made sense, I felt, to go along, share my news and see what we could come up with. So basically, you'd switch back into work mode and we're just dealing with it as a problem that needed to be sorted out. You did warn me that you were really going to go for it with your questions today. The answer is, 
Yes and no, which I appreciate has often been a frustrating response for you to receive on the many occasions on which I have given it over the years. You're right, I definitely went into problem-solving mode. More than I did at the time, I would acknowledge that that was my way of coping with the situation. Yes, conversations needed to happen and decisions needed to be made, but it certainly helped me that I was able to get on and do some things in response to a new set of circumstances in which things very much seemed to be happening to me and control of my life had been snatched away from me. But I wouldn't say that I was totally in problem-solving mode. The emotions were certainly churning over on the inside, and I was very aware that you and the children were also trying to process your own thoughts and feelings. So how did you break the news when you went into school? I didn't analyse it like this at the time, but I think that I tried to do three things whenever I let people know about my diagnosis. Firstly, I tried to give a manageable amount of clear information about the diagnosis, the treatment, and the anticipated outcome that the treatment would be successful. Secondly, I would comment on how I was feeling about the situation because I considered that it was important to be honest and open about how it was affecting me, you and the family. And thirdly, I tried to strike an appropriate balance between acknowledging that our lives had just been turned upside down and affirming that this unwelcome development wasn't going to change who I am and who we are. I never cease to wonder how different we are So take me a bit further into what that final point in particular actually means in practice. I suppose that I was trying to say that I was still the same Mike that they had known the day before. Just because cancer had come knocking at the door, it didn't mean that it had taken over. That's where words can come in and can be so important, I think. I know that it's not your favourite thing when I tell people about your slip of the tongue in referring to my particular brand of cancer as mental cell lymphoma rather than mantle cell. But being able to say that the cells in my body had gone mental and as a result had formed a cancer really helped me, first of all, to communicate difficult information in a fairly light manner and secondly, by making me feel that the story was now being told on my terms. Thanks for the reminder about mental cell. I should have known that despite getting to ask the questions, this conversation wouldn't go all my way. As you know, though, I regard it as part of my role to bring you back to reality on occasion. So was it not the case that you were somewhat optimistic on that Thursday afternoon about how things would pan out as far as your attendance at school was concerned? You are, of course, right. In my usual optimistic fashion, I explained that my hope and intention was to be off work when undergoing treatment, but in between times I expected to carry on working as usual and to be present in school as much as possible. The reality, as you know, is that my first visit back to school after my treatment started didn't happen until the end of a school session in June, when I popped in very briefly just to say hello. However, I don't feel that undermines the validity of my approach, not least because my pattern was to say what I hoped would happen, but also to comment that I knew that as time went on, I would need to listen to my body and also to other people and to change plans if need be. It just happened to turn out that those plans changed much quicker than I thought that they would. Okay, so you told the leadership team, and then what? I managed to speak to some other colleagues in person, but despite it not being the ideal way of communicating such information, the timescale of events led me to send an explanatory email to all staff. And talk me through that. Why did you feel the need to do that? Well, my role in the school meant that an extended absence would prompt questions, and being upfront and straightforward about the situation from the outset seemed to be the best way to handle it. 
That was also the approach that we decided to adopt for pupils and parents. Circumstances can obviously vary from situation to situation, meaning that the appropriate response for each specific context needs to be considered carefully. In this instance, I think that a shared awareness of the situation was really helpful, although I accept that giving the nondescript heading of just so that you know, to my email to staff, may not have adequately prepared some of them for the fact that this was not another email outlining practical arrangements affecting the school day. And chilling news of your illness with pupils will seem surprising to some people, I think. Why did you do that? As far as has been possible and appropriate, I've always tried to pass on information affecting pupils to them directly. That happened not only at assemblies, but also through emails to whole year groups. So when I knew that my normal interaction with pupils was going to be affected by imminent absence from school and that it would also be obvious to everyone at some point that I'd been undergoing cancer treatment, I decided to send a group email to pupils explaining the situation. I tried to get the balance right between providing them with appropriate information and acknowledging that I was having to adjust my thinking in order to deal positively with an unexpected turn of events. And did you get any feedback from pupils? Yes. Some lovely emails from pupils, but more often than not, the feedback would come from a parent, letting me know that my email had triggered a useful conversation at home. And what about contact from staff and parents? Suffice it to say that I was overwhelmed by the emails and cards that I received. Never underestimate the impact of simply getting in touch with someone who is unwell. And never underestimate the power of some thoughtfully chosen words in a card or an email. Such messages certainly made a huge difference to me. Many thanks, Mike, for sharing all of those thoughts with us today. I shall look forward to asking you further questions next time. Very sneaky. I saw what you did there. But OK, if you can come up with the questions, I'm willing to be in the hot seat again next time. Excellent. In the meantime, I will sign off with a quick reminder that we are keen for our conversations in this podcast not to take place in a vacuum. So please let us know your thoughts on what we have discussed. And if you're happy to do so, please also share your own experiences in this area. You can do this by emailing us at foapodcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk. I hope that you'll join us next time. Bye. This month's and finally slot has been prompted by my thoughts turning to cancer slogans as a result of World Cancer Day taking place this week on the 4th of February. In order to make their message as memorable as possible, the creators of slogans will often use language techniques and devices that have been deployed by poets and speechwriters over the years. Rhyme and rhythm feature, for example, in Early Detection for Your Protection. Repetition, balance and contrast each plays its part in A world with less cancer is a world with more birthdays. Australia's skin cancer campaign has long made use of both alliteration and consonants with slip-slop-slap, while a play on words in the form of a pun creates the impact in Cancer is a word, not a sentence. The tagline for World Cancer Day is Close the Care Gap, which benefits from being a brief, imperative sentence with single syllables, strong consonants and some alliteration. But the use of care is a bit of a risk, as it not only introduces an unexpected word into the expression, it also breaks the sequence of punchy short syllables. Nevertheless, I think that the use of the phrase care gap does a good job of drawing attention to the message that reducing unfairness in cancer care across the world has to be a priority. And given 
that there is no quick fix in that area, it makes sense that the slogan was selected to run from 2022 to 2024, and not just for a single year. Thank you very much indeed for joining us for this episode of the Friends of Anchor podcast. And please get in touch with your thoughts, feedback, questions and suggestions via email at foapodcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk. We would also love it if you would sign up to receive updates from us by filling in the brief form to which there is a link in the show notes. And please do join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you and your podcast where you want to go. 